This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 34, Ancient Weaponry. History is the history of human conflict, and the history of warfare dates right back to ancient times. However, it is not in the human nature to go directly into conflict with other humans, so although we want to look at the history of weaponry, we need to understand the nature of conflict and explore the origins of our expertise in the creation of weapons. In order to do that, we must understand why we created weapons in the first place and why we felt that we had to have conflict with each other. These two questions are actually not related as we will discover throughout this episode. Weapons were not created for humans to go into conflict with other humans. As we already know, weapons were created for humans to hunt animals. So to get a complete background on our expertise, we need to go back to the content of a very old episode of this podcast. Back in Volume 1, we discussed the history of hunter-gatherers in Episode 12. This took us way back to the Stone Age and the work of the Leakey family, among others, at places like Olduvai Gorge. Now it seems like a long time since we spoke about this, but we must go back to this period to have a comprehensive understanding of the progress so that by the end of this episode we should have a strong appreciation of the timelines of advancement. So let's summarise some of the hunting weapons that we already know about. Older Wan tools date back to around two and a half million years ago, a period of human history that we explored in Volume 1. Discovered at Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania, these hard stone objects were deliberately struck by harder stones to create sharp edges that were ideal for bludgeoning prey, skinning the animal and carving the meat and extracting the marrow from the bone. The modern human being had not evolved at this point but this was the age of our ancestor Homo habilis who is likely to have been the creator and user of this tool. However, let us suppose that two groups of Homo habilis individuals were trying to own the same prey, or even the same territory. It would not be unimaginable to see physical conflict between two Homo habilis individuals similar to the kind we may see among chimpanzees but with their apparent dexterity and familiarity with stone, I would also strongly suggest that one Homo habilis individual would understand the value of propelling stones towards an enemy, even if they are unlikely to have the anatomy to throw like a modern human can, an adaptation that we should not take for granted. 
If we go back even earlier in the podcast series to episode 5 of volume 1, we did explore the tall creation of human ancestors such as Homo habilis, and also such as a later human ancestor called Homo erectus. From around one and a half million years ago, a million years after the older one tools, humans had started creating flint knives manufactured by soft and hard percussion, which is the use of different items to sculpt the flint into the desired end result. One progression that we are aware of is the discovery of the usefulness of a serrated edge. We can find flint knives with deliberately serrated edges, although some speculate that this has been created more for the purpose of chopping wood as opposed to flesh, while others suggest it would have been useful for sawing bones. The teeth of the serrated edges would certainly go on to influence the creation of bone harpoons for future fishermen and the microlithic culture which involved creating the individual teeth to be applied to another object. Modern humans are thought to have evolved from around 300,000 years ago. Early modern humans had taken the creation of stone tools to a very intricate and intelligent level with a lot of time and attention now being invested in the creation of stone tools. They were now using the Lavalois technique of flint napping, which is something that would have had to have been taught as a production process to arrive with a desired tool, which would have been far more effective and versatile as a handheld tool. So humans had mastered the ability to manipulate stone for the benefit of their survival. This was just one technique to create handheld tools or hand axes. Larger hand axes would have given modern humans an edge in a one-on-one confrontation with another human. The Late Stone Age and Neolithic By the Late Stone Age we can really begin to see the expertise of human creativity. In the last 30,000 years some very skillfully produced bone harpoons were created with serrated teeth that would have been terrific for fish hunting. So it was not just stone which was being used for hunting weapons, but also bone. We also mentioned that our human ancestors may not have had a strong ability to throw, but this ability started to evolve and certainly in the last million years we can assume that humans were creating wooden spears which could have been used as javelins and this ability to hunt using javelins may have assisted our evolution to become expert throwers. However, by the late stone age we had taken this a stage further by the production of atlatls which would allow humans to propel their spears even greater distances. The atlatl is something that we took a closer look at in episode 13 of volume 1 as it is one of the first objects used for hunting purposes that humans would decorate. The purpose of this decoration could have been linked to the emergence of an early stratified society where the decorated atlatl may have belonged to the tribe leader or it could have been ceremonial where the decoration would be an appeal to the deities for hunting success. 
A lot of the stone points that were being created now do not look like handheld tools, but it would make sense to believe that they were part of composite tools, where the points would be attached to a wooden spear with twine and natural adhesives. So the wooden spears would be tipped with a strong and effective sharp stone point. And this effective tool creation would have migrated to all areas of the world. The diversity of the landmass of the Americas, which we discussed last week, demonstrate how different styles of weapons suited different environments. Small tools such as microliths and harpoons prospered in the Arctic region, where marine hunting was vital. But if we look to the grasslands of the modern United States, then spear points were much more useful against terrestrial prey, and so we find the emergence of the well-known Clovis points, developed by the Clovis culture from around 12,000 years ago. Let's now go to Egypt, and the year is 5500 BCE. It would be two and a half thousand years before the emergence of a united Egyptian kingdom. We can see evidence of the creation of flint points, which Egyptologists have speculated are arrowheads. And there is definite evidence of arrowheads of various ages from this time onwards. So there is good evidence of the progression of an Egyptian arrowhead technology. The notable thing is the definitely geometric arrowhead shape when compared to previous flint points with their more bulbous elliptical appearance. The suspicion is that these arrowheads were part of a composite arrow which would have been propelled by a bow, perhaps made from acacia wood and depicted in some 4th millennium BCE Egyptian artwork. The big question is, were these arrows created for game hunting or were they created for human warfare? The Bronze Age If we go back to episode 3 relating to the Sumerian city of Ur in Mesopotamia, we spoke of an artefact which was discovered that has been named the Standard of Ur. The Standard of Ur is a highly decorated box dating back four and a half thousand years and it is very important for the fact that it depicts warfare. Third millennium BCE Mesopotamia is a fascinating historical study for which there is a lot of evidence of stratified highly populated cities having influence over their local areas and wrestling for supremacy over each other. This would undoubtedly lead to warfare between the city-states and the standard of awe appears to validate this opinion. The images are incredible when we consider the things that we have discussed already as they depict a highly prepared army with some very advanced aspects. Firstly, we notice horses and chariots. This is very interesting because we do not believe that the Egyptians had chariots until a thousand years afterwards, which is absolutely considerable when you think about the fact that there had to be established trade links between the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians. Horse domestication and usage is thought to have originated 
in the Eurasian steppe, where equine animals were used as cavalry. But in relation to the standard of ore, it is believed that the equine animals are actually onagers and that they were not ridden, but simply pulled the wheeled chariots. Chariots seem to be able to carry two people at a time, so maybe one was steering the chariot while the other was using a spear to attack enemies. You can imagine that this military vehicle was very effective for swift attacks and escapes where necessary. A row of infantry is also depicted on the standard of ore. The infantry appear to have the same outfit as each other. On their heads is a helmet or a cap which has been suggested to have been a leather cap and also they each wear a cape. They all assume the same stance suggesting that they are part of an organised military group or phalanx. Each of them have in their right hand a long weapon, perhaps a type of axe. We can be quite sure that there would have been intense warfare between the city-states of Mesopotamia and that military preparations were a major part of society. Production of weapons and clothing, as well as the training of troops, would have to be planned and executed effectively, more effectively than your neighbour. Another excavated artefact called the Cone of Entemena details in cuneiform inscriptions a conflict between the two Mesopotamian city-states of Lagash and Umma. We have already discussed conflict between these two city-states when we told the story of Lugal Zagazi of Umma defeating Urukajina of Lagash all the way back in episode 1. So we have excavations, depictions and written stories confirming a seriously military way of life for the Sumerian city-states. It is very likely that this expertise must have evolved over a number of generations to have become this advanced and well organised by the mid-third millennium BCE. We have yet to find evidence of this advancement, but who knows what future excavations may bring to our attention. Beautiful helmets and daggers can be found from this period, made from gold and silver and dressed with lapis lazuli, demonstrating the rich trade network that existed in the world of the 3rd millennium BCE. The daggers are accompanied by equally ornate and precious scabbards. There can be no way that these helmets and daggers excavated in Sumeria and dating to the mid-3rd millennium BCE were manufactured for battle. There is little logic for this unnecessary effort and expense and no evidence of wear and tear damage. These have to be ceremonial objects created for the great military monarchs and leaders of the warring city-states. Military monarchs were the necessary leaders of successful city-states and the best were honoured and celebrated. Despite these wonderful examples of ceremonial metalworking, there is no evidence of widespread metal weapon production until the 2nd millennium BCE. 
with the emergence of the Middle Kingdom in Egypt at the very end of the 3rd millennium BCE, we discover bronze axe heads and bronze spearheads in Egypt. This demonstrates that the Middle Kingdom Egyptians appeared to be making weapons that were specialised for different methods of attack. These heads would have still needed to have been hafted to wooden spears, but the spears appear to have been good for high speed attacks where the axe heads were likely to have been ideal for close quarters combat. In the meantime, a new power was emerging in northern Mesopotamia in the shape of the Assyrians. The Assyrians themselves were making advances in metalworking. We can see one of the earliest advances of a scale armour. Small bronze plates were being manufactured which would have been applied to a leather coat that is probably not unlike the cloaks worn by the infantry on the standard of ore, covering the torso and the upper legs. It is also believed that the Assyrian infantry on the early 2nd millennium BCE would have worn metal helmets. The fact of the matter is that the Near East cultures accelerated into a competitive collection of societies where success against each other was essential for survival. The best prepared city-states survived, so there was significant pressure for technological advances and none more so than in the military industry. In Egypt, Sumer and Assyria during the early Bronze Age, life became a survival of the fittest in a competition for resources and there was a very sudden requirement for military production. Another milestone of the 3rd millennium BCE was the success of Sargon the Great's Akkadian army over the Sumerian leader Lugalzagazi and this victory may have come as a result of superior military tactics so we get a real view of the great value of military strategy and military strategists. Sargon may have been the first military commander to utilise archers on a large scale and it could be decisions like this that gave Sargon the Great his impressive legacy as one of the first great military leaders. Metallurgy As populations increased and cities became more wealthy, an ability to mine and trade more metal became apparent, and therefore the cost of producing metal objects became more affordable with there being a thriving metal industry. This meant that things such as armour and full swords could now be produced. If we look at metallurgy's relationship with weaponry and societies, then we can speculate about how prehistoric and ancient military evolved. Copper refining and smelting emerged around the 5th millennium BCE, and metal was sought after, especially by those growing city-states such as Uruk, which seemingly had become an industrial centre during the 4th millennium BCE. It is not unreasonable to suppose that conflict was taking place as far back as this time, as Uruk would have likely been defending its wealth and trying to monopolise the local trade network. In fact, defence of land 
would have likely gone back to the earliest sedimentary societies looking to protect their fertile lands. We even speculated that the 8th millennium BCE Wall of Jericho, mentioned in episode 17 of volume 1, may have been a defensive construction. The 4th millennium BCE Egyptian Tomb 100 at Hierakonpolis, mentioned in episode 23 of volume 1, seems to depict a conflict between two different sets of people. So although evidence of conflict seems to be abundant in the 3rd millennium BCE compared to previous millenniums, we can feel sure that it would have existed beforehand, but it is not likely to have been on a large scale which required specialist production of weapons and defences, large organised armies and master tacticians. Bronze production would have become a mainstream aspect of the 3rd millennium BCE in the Near East, but large-scale bronze production would really come to the fore in the 2nd millennium BCE. Many large empires and kingdoms started to emerge in the 2nd millennium BCE, quite unlike the warring city-states of the previous millennium. The Assyrians the Babylonians, the Hittites, the Mitanni and the Egyptian Middle Kingdom all became considerable centralised states with a considerable military might inspired by those Mesopotamian powerhouses of centuries gone by. The spread of military states dominated the Near East. The discovery of another ceremonial dagger in Phoenicia from the 18th century BCE is confusing as the early Phoenicians are not recognised as a military presence but as expert merchants. This would suggest that everybody knew that the world was a place where the best military outfit ruled the land. It would be during a comparatively stagnant period of the first half of the 2nd millennium BCE, maybe around the 16th century BCE, that the Hittites would start exploring the possibilities with iron. It may have been that bronze was hard for the Hittites to come by during this time and they had little option but to investigate an alternative. Iron was thoroughly impractical to work with using 2nd millennium BCE technology, but the end result was far more effective with tougher and highly durable weapons and armours. It wouldn't be until the following millennium that the Assyrians would become mass producers of iron weaponry. The Late Bronze Age the Late Bronze Age was an age of empires. We are always very astonished when we think about the fact that the Egyptians did not produce their own chariots before the Hyksos peoples introduced them to the Egyptians the hard way by using chariotry against them. Ultimately, as we learned back in episode 17, the Egyptians would run the Hyksos out of Egypt and adopt chariotry into their own military offence. Despite not using chariots, the Egyptians were still advancing their weaponry. 
they already had expert archers who would come to ride in the adopted chariot technology. We already know that their other infantry were using battle axes and spears and the infantry must have been highly trained to fight in formations by military commanders which is not unlike the armies of the Sumerian city-states from centuries gone by. Remember that Egypt was a kingdom of chaos during its intermediate periods when the gnomes, which could be described as the provinces, were in conflict with each other for supremacy. Egyptian weaponry was made up of carefully hafted weapons by the beginning of the new kingdom but there is also evidence of a range of swords that have been discovered from the New Kingdom period. Copper swords would range in length, but we have discovered swords with impressive looking gilded gold hilts, which may indicate that they were created for the elite warriors or the royal class. It has been suggested that like chariots, metal swords were introduced to Egypt, probably from the Middle East. These swords resemble traditional swords, but the Egyptians also had the kopesh, which has otherwise been called a sickle sword. A sharp blow from close quarters with this thin but heavy sword could potentially slash through an opponent's armour. Pharaoh Tutankhamun had two ceremonial kopeshes placed in his tomb. Some Egyptologists speculate that the Kopesh fell out of popularity among the Egyptians in favour of the more traditional looking swords. Another artefact discovered within the tomb of Tutankhamun is a ceremonial shield. Now if we go back to the standard of ore from over a thousand years earlier in Mesopotamia, the infantry men did not carry shields. However, the presence of a ceremonial shield in the late Bronze Age Egypt suggests that shields were used by the Egyptian army. It may even be the case that Egyptian archers were protected by their own shield bearer while in battle, which is a tactic that was definitely used by the Assyrian army of Tiglath-Pileser III in the following millennium. It would be now that the Egyptians would take all of their military might and meet the dangerous Hittites at the Battle of Kadesh in 1274 BCE. This would come to be regarded as the clash of the two chariot armies. And if you want to know more about this fascinating confrontation of chariots, military strategy, deception and timing, then you need only go back and listen to episode 17 which is a whole episode completely devoted to the conflict. In the wake of the somewhat inconclusive Battle of Kadesh the Near East world was heading towards the late Bronze Age collapse. Once again something that we covered back in episode 6. The late Bronze Age collapse would see the end of the Hittite Empire but not before something which has been recorded as the first naval battle in recorded history in 1210 BCE when the Hittites, led by Sipiluliuma II, were victorious against the Alashia kingdom 
who were based on the island of Cyprus. It is also worth noting that warfare had become a serious issue in the lands of modern China. The people of the Shang dynasty were using chariots in warfare too, but it is thought that originally the chariot was not used for warfare, but for ceremony. Could chariotry have been invented in China as well as the Near East? We cannot be completely sure, but it has also been suggested that the first chariots were introduced from the Eurasian steppe. Shang warriors used daggers, as swords would not be favoured in Chinese lands until after the Shang. We do see the creation of more ornate and precious objects, undoubtedly for the elite, something common with the Near East. Elaborately decorated daggers have been excavated and there is absolutely no value to mass production of these objects. Many of the infantry are likely to have been armed with bronze axe heads hafted onto wooden handles. However, if you remember back in episode 30, we suggested that the people of ancient China regarded jade as a precious material. And there are indeed ceremonial jade axe heads excavated from this time and land to support this. We have also discovered bronze halberds that date to the Shang period. Some of these halberds would have been well decorated, such was the skill of the bronze working of the Shang, who would have been able to mass produce quality bronze items using their piece mould technique. The halberd would have been hafted onto a wooden handle and used in the same way as an axe. After the Bronze Age The late Bronze Age collapse saw the end, or the beginning of the end, of many kingdoms and empires, which also resulted in the stunting of the established international trade network, which would affect the fortunes of related kingdoms and empires. The Mycenaeans, the Hittites and the New Kingdom of Egypt were to disappear but the Assyrian Empire managed to somehow survive despite the pressures it faced from the aggression of Aramean nomads taking over former Assyrian lands and pinning the Assyrians into their heartland. As we discovered during episode 7 about the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrians started rebuilding, and much of this rebuilding would be militarily. The Assyrians were always militarily impressive before the late Bronze Age collapse. The Hittites and the Egyptians clearly had a great deal of respect for their abilities and conducted their international affairs with caution because of them. The Treaty of Kadesh between the two nations seemed to be a testimony to the rising threat of the Assyrians. We have evidence of Assyrians having their own version of the bronze sickle sword, which is called a sapara. Its shape is very much like the Egyptian kopesh. We can't be sure who adopted the sickle sword from who, but it does seem that history tells us that often the Asiatics created 
and the Egyptians adopted. So if this theory is correct, then the Egyptian Kopesh descended from the Assyrian Sapara. The big technological advance of the Assyrians after the late Bronze Age collapse was the mastery of ironmongery. As we have mentioned previously, the Hittites used iron, but it doesn't appear to have necessarily been their preferred choice of metal. The Assyrians had no such apparent issue with their use of iron. In fact, they built their new empire with iron as a major contributing factor to their weaponry. Archers would now be using arrows, not only tipped in bronze, but now also in iron. Assyrian arrowheads have been discovered at the site of the Siege of Lachish, which took place in the Judean Kingdom in the year 701 BCE, and something we covered in episode 8. The Siege of Lachish also demonstrates ancient siege warfare, which is something that also needed to keep up with military progress. Defensive walls and towers had to become bigger and stronger over time, and siege engines that were being built were becoming more powerful. We are still a long way from the nuclear-powered submarines, guided missile destroyers, aircraft carriers, sniper rifles, tanks, aerial reconnaissance, machine guns, pistols and shotguns of the modern world. But everything has to start from somewhere, and today's episode was that story. Thank you very much for listening to this week's fascinating story. We took a a little bit of a diversion this week. Often we're taking geographical episodes and making timelines of what happened in particular countries or particular areas of the world. But I think these technological episodes and these these other aspects of human society that have emerged over the years, I think they're vitally important to understanding the undercurrents and the the parallels of our society and it also ties the societies of the world together and also allows us to make connections between them so i think it's absolutely vital if we want a thorough understanding then these episodes such as weaponry languages the story of writing etc etc i think they're absolutely vital and next week's episode is going to be a fascinating one about the history of ancient medicine. Now, there's going to be some gruesome stories, I should imagine, that we're going to be telling there, but um, that's one to look forward to next week. And I believe that's going to be the last proper episode of the ancient series of this volume too. Then we'll be looking to tie things up with the summary, and that will be the end of the ancient volume. We made it, we made it to the end, so incredible but uh, all good things have to come to an end and we have to prepare for volume three. So that's all coming up in the next couple of weeks. Now we got a nice message from Jessica Williscroft who commented on the episode on the Trojan War way back in episode 25. And she said that she really enjoyed the episode and reminded her of her schooling when they studied Iliad, Troilus and Cressida and she developed a huge crush on Hector, who seemed the epitome of the noble tragic hero. 
she said that they're visiting Knossos. Um, she says visiting Knossos tomorrow. Well, that was a few days ago, so she will have visited Knossos now. And uh, that's how she discovered the podcast. So this is good. So when we, uh, when we publish podcasts on different episodes, the scope of the discovery of our podcast gets wider and wider as we have more things that can be discovered. So brilliant. Thank you very much for the feedback, Jessica. And I hope you really enjoyed Knossos. It's around about, it's almost 30 years since I last went to Knossos. A long, long time ago. I would imagine it's not changed much. Let's quickly catch up with some Apple podcast reviews. Firstly, from J. Maggie Jess from Australia. Five stars, thanks. Have recently discovered your podcast. Am up to season one, episode seven. Am an Australian lady of Indian ethnicity. 59 years old, funnily, does not match any aspect of the survey of your listeners the early survey of your listeners no well I, I don't know uh, if it measures ethnicity but it certainly measures where you come from and uh, we've covered Australia and India um, briefly in our podcast history so I hope you you continue to enjoy the podcast and thank you for the review Nelman2646 from Australia but superb keep up the good work I'll try my best uh, Blakester95 from the United States of America has put good stuff, succinct and enjoyable. Well, that's a succinct review, and uh, we like being succinct. It's something I struggle with. I'm often over-explaining things, so I'm glad the podcast is coming over as succinct. Final review on Apple Podcasts from Arthur Chin from Germany. Uh, the podcast brings an excellent balance between general overviews and deep dive on various ancient historical topics. I quite like the subdivisions on aspects of a particular topic and wish more podcasts would do the same. And Arthur uh, was very kind enough to become a patron of the website by joining Patreon and making a monthly donation to the podcast. And as such, he is now a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. If you want to become a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, and you want to be eligible for the rewards that we offer those who do make monthly contributions, then go on over to the Patreon website and register for a donation. It can, it can be as little as $1 a month. Uh, some of the Patreons... Very, we're very fortunate they offer $10 a month so it's entirely up to you what you contribute and it really does help me to keep the podcast going with good quality podcasts and good quality resources as well so I'm always buying new books for the podcast and investing in new equipment it really does help if you're unable to make a financial contribution then please do rate and review the podcast because that is equally valuable to the podcast and its future in other news for the podcast i believe that we've got another youtube video coming out and it's uh, once again by the study of antiquity in the middle ages uh, the youtube channel created by nick barksdale he's done five terrific re-enactments of my podcasts and i think another one is imminently on its way regarding the 
Indo-European, something from back in episode 28, if I'm not mistaken, yes, episode 28. So there'll be a video version of that with lots of these very well sought out maps. And I know Ollie buys maps uh, from YouTube, an incredible resource, and I'm often referring to them myself. So uh, I believe that uh, Nick has approached Ollie and said, look, can we use some maps for Chris's episodes? And uh, he's obliged, so it makes a great enhancement of the quality of these YouTube videos where three great projects come together to form a better and bigger production of the podcasts themselves so thank you so much Nick and I'll post a link on the media pages as usual well that's about it for this week I'm going to wrap up now next week we're going to be delving into the gruesome world of ancient medicine just what did you do if you had a toothache or a headache back in ancient times there was no hospital to go to what happened well we'll try and find out so be sure to join me next week until then have a fantastic week the history of the world podcast is available on many different podcast platforms so please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us visit our website at historyofthewordpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.